I want to thank the elders of the congregation for extending me this invitation to be here tonight. I know when you take the word of Aaron Jones that the speaker's going to be good, you're taking a chance. And so I appreciate that. I brought about 30 of my family with me, and I realize that they're not here to hear me speak. They're here because I brought my baby girl with me, and they've never seen her before. She's eight months old, and I am evidence that ugly people can have beautiful children. And she's down there, so you can love and kiss on her. I love my church family. I haven't lived at home in ten years. It's been that long. And wherever I go, I've got grandmas and grandpas, mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers who have loved me and who have taken care of me, and I appreciate that. If you would, if you brought your Bible tonight, I'd like to see it. Who brought their Bible tonight? Would you hold it up? Stop holding up the songbook. (laughs) That's good. That's good. If you have your Bible, open up to Galatians chapter 6, and that's where we're going to start tonight. There's nothing more precious than a little child, I'm I'm finding out. I love being a father. When I am home, which is not much, I go into my daughter's room at night after she goes to sleep, and I watch her sleep there. And I take a knee next to her crib and I say a prayer for her because I know, first of all, that there's some ugly little boy that's already been born who wants to marry my daughter one day. And I'm praying that that little boy will be a Christian man. And I'm praying that my daughter will become a Christian woman and an example for my children's children. That we can truly have the faith of our fathers passed down through the generations. And so it's so good for me to be here, and it really touches me to see the Jones and Brunton families here tonight, because that's an example of a family who has passed down the faith of their fathers. There's a lot of Joneses out there, and a lot of them are Christians. And that means so much to me to have been born in a country where God still comes off people's lips where the word is still studied. Because I go to a lot of places where there is no God in the lives of the people who live there. Although God is always there. They've turned their backs on Him. And it's an ugly world. And this is the world that our young people are going to have to grow up in. And so as I travel around and speak in different congregations, I'm very concerned about the young people. Because right now we're losing 65% roughly, of our young people in the church. Children who grow up in Christian homes, who attend Christian universities, Free, Lipscomb, Harding, they go off and they leave home and they leave the church. And that's a a concern for me because as I look around this room, if Mount Juliet Church of Christ holds to the norm, 65% of these young people will not be a member of the church 10 years down the road. Maybe it would be my daughter. Maybe it would be your children. I just spoke at a congregation in Chattanooga this morning who has lost 70% of their young people. And they formed a group called the Concerned Parents Group because they're concerned about what's happening to their children. They're trying to figure out why this is happening in the church. 
And so, young people, my message for you tonight is that the church needs you. The church needs you. I believe that young people's energy can be used for the cause of Christ, for the cause of the kingdom. And if it's not, it's going to be used for the cause of Satan. And that's why where I live, we have drive-bys. We have cocaine laboratories. We have meth labs. We have gangs and shootings. Because young people out in the state of Washington are not being taught the gospel. It is the least churched state in the nation. And so I'm very concerned about young people and about what's going on. And so that's why I ask if you brought your Bibles tonight. Because you are going to have to fight for your souls. There is a war going on. And I, I live out there in that world and I see it every day. It's easy for me to stand here and talk to you today about God. It's easier for me to do it in this room of three or 400 people than it is for me to do out there in the world. Because that's where the war is. That's where my battle is. That's where my struggle is. And so I want to give you three reasons tonight why, church, we have to be focused on the home of the soul instead of the home of the body. And in doing so, I'm going to ask you to turn to number 957. 957 in your songbooks. Now, normally, when the preacher says, take out your songbook, people get happy because the sermon's over. But I'm not going to cut you that much slack, Uncle Aaron. He said to keep it short. I know that was Uncle Carl. Keep it short. Yeah, I'll only go about two or three hours, and I'll be done as soon as I'm finished. I promise you. This is a song that is near and dear to my heart. Because this world is not my home. And getting people to understand, especially our young people, to understand that there is something bigger than this world is a hard thing to do because a lot of times we walk by sight and not by faith. So let's sing number 957. This world is not my home.
Amen. This world is not my home. And there's a reason why. Because as I left home and went out into that world, I found that it was a cruel world. I found that this world is not my home and that I need to be concerned about the home of my soul because the world is deceptive. The world is deceptive. Revelation says that Satan has come to deceive the world. He's the great deceiver. And Satan can deceive the young people. I've seen it as I travel around. He's deceived me. Satan can take out the young people at the Mount Juliet Church of Christ in one generation if we stop teaching, if we stop training. It can happen in one generation. Churches are born and churches die. Matthew 16, 18 tells me that the church will always be here. But I'm very concerned to see what's happening to our young people. I ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 6, and I want you to read with me verses 7 and 8. Galatians 6, 7 and 8. Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. John 8, 44 tells us that Satan is the father of lies. You know, every time I have sinned in my life, willingly I have said to myself, a lie. I have told myself that what I'm about to do is going to bring me more pleasure than obeying God. And I've believed that lie. I've been deceived. Luke chapter 16, if you turn with me there, has a story about a rich man and a poor man. And it shows how Satan's deception is at work in our lives. Luke chapter 16 and verse 19 reads, Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Both left the home of the body and went to the home of the soul. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. The tables have turned. And besides all this, between you and us, there is a great goal fixed in order that those who wish to come over here to you may not be able, and that none may be able to cross there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. This rich man was a Jew. He knew the law. He said, Father Abraham, he knew how to please God. What a time to start thinking about your family, church. What a time to start thinking about your children, about your brothers, and about the lost.
In verse 29, Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if some, someone rises from the dead. Jesus has arisen from the dead, and does the world believe? Still deceived. Still deceived. Satan's biggest lie to the rich man was this, you have time. You have time. One of the hardest things for me to understand as a young person was that I don't have time. I don't have time. Last month I got to visit my college roommate, guy I'd lived with for two years. I flew out to Washington, D.C. to uh, do some of the presidential support that they were talking about. And as I, I walked over to the book to find his name in the book at the Arlington Cemetery, it was about a two-mile drive out to his headstone. And I wasn't ready for what I found there. He was in the same grave as five other men, six guys in one grave. My roommate, shortly after we graduated, was involved in a helicopter crash. And so six men in one grave told me that there was nothing left. And I stood there at his grave, and I had to think back about time and about the two years that I had with Mike and what I had done to touch his life. What had I done? I had time, I thought. And so the rich man thought he had time. But not everyone in this room is going to live to be 80 years old. I'm not trying to be morbid. That's reality. That's reality. I have flown too many 18-year-old boys in body bags in the back of my airplane back from Baghdad to be deceived into thinking that I have time in this world. And so everywhere I go and everything I do, I am trying as hard as I can to get the gospel of Jesus Christ out to the people that I come into contact with. Because I may be the only Christian that they come into contact with, and they may not have time. And so that's one of Satan's greatest lies to young people, is that you have time. Time is something very precious, something I have very little love with, with the family of God. I'm gone about 250 days a year since 9-11. That's a lot of time gone from home. And I got to tell you, church, when I come back to America and I meet with the body for two days, no, make that two or three hours a week, that's not enough for me. That's not enough time for me to get to know you and for you to get to know me and for us to love one another. My Bible says that the church went from house to house daily. And so I need that fellowship. I miss that fellowship. And I'm encouraged to come here and just to be with you and to hear you sing, to hear the voices of the saints. Because a lot of Sundays, it's me and my Bible and a little cracker and a little bit of grape juice. And so Satan deceives us into thinking that we don't need to be in the assembly. That we need to spend our time away from one another, filling our lives with entertainment and filling our lives with things of this world. And so I, I think hospitality maybe is something that we all could work on a little bit. Opening up our homes. God gave me a home for a purpose, and I use it for that purpose. Now, we've all been taught that we have to be good housekeepers and that the house has to look good. I'm not a great housekeeper. My wife is not a great housekeeper. I'm sorry, honey. <laughs> I love you. But we still have people over to the house, although we're not a good housekeepers. 
As a matter of fact, I, I'm not even a good Christian. But I sure am trying. I sure am trying. It gets a little bit cleaner every day. I'm not what I need to be, someone said. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I should be. But by God's grace, I'm not what I used to be. Because I realize that time is precious. Turn back a page to Luke chapter 15 with me. You all know the story of the prodigal son, probably. So I'm not going to read the story to you. But I want to focus on one verse as we think about the deception of the world. And that's Luke 15 and verse 17. Where it says, the boy who went out left the church because he had left home. He was raised in the church. And he went off to Lipscomb or Freed or Tennessee Tech or wherever it is that you might go. And he left his faith behind him. And one day he wakes up pregnant, drunk, addicted to drugs, eating with the pigs. And verse 17 says he came to his senses. I remember when I was 16 years old, I knew everything there was to know about everything, and you couldn't tell me anything about nothing. That's how we are as teenagers. Some of us have to learn by trial by fire. We just have to mess up, and that's how we learn. But some of us can be told, and we can be raised in Christian homes, and told there is no life like the Christian life. And I'm convinced of that. I work with guys every day who have problems because they're not following God. Last week I had a study in my home with three people who ranged from 17 to 21 years old, people I work with. This boy was 19 years old, had been divorced, and had a one-year-old son. 19 years old. And so that's why it's so important, young people, that you know the word, because it's the only weapon you have against Satan. It's all you have to fight that fight. But in verse 17 it says... He came to his senses. What does that mean? It means he finally realized that this world is deceitful. And he finally realized Satan's empty promises. Whatever promise Satan makes to you, he can't, he can't cash it in. God's promises are true. But Satan, when you leave home, he will promise you that drinking is fun. And getting involved in drugs is fun. And doing all this stuff is fun. And Christianity is no fun. It's just for old fogies. You can't have any fun. And sometimes I look around the room while we sing, and, and I wonder, it's probably not a stretch that they get that impression, because a lot of us look like we're sucking on lemons and pickles as we sing, you know. But Christianity is a fun life. There is no greater joy for me than to go off on a trip and to know that my wife will be faithful while I'm gone. And the guys I fly with talk about, I'm 25, 26 years old, and I'm already divorced. There is no better life than the Christian life. But Satan doesn't want you to believe that. We just had to do a disfellowship in our congregation in Seattle. That was one of the hardest things for us to do. 21 years old, this, this boy, this man had left his wife and said, I don't want to have anything to do with you because there's women that are better looking and I'm going to be with as many of them as I can. And he wouldn't repent. And I pray that he will come to his senses like the prodigal son. Satan also deceives us 
with money. I see so many young people who have been deceived by the dollar. Where Satan says, you can be happy with just a little bit bigger car, just a little bit bigger house, just a little bit better job. And so what happens is both the husband and wife are now working outside the home. And I come home and my vacation is different than my wife's vacation and we can't do anything and we're both tired and we can't give the time that we need to give to the kids. And our children are raised in daycares. Titus 2 instructs the older women to teach the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, and to work in the home so that we can maintain strong homes. Somebody wrote a book. I, I like history. and they, I was reading this book while I was flying one day about how the Roman Empire fell because America is a lot like the Roman Empire if you study history. Two things, he said, contributed to the collapse of Rome. Great empire ruled the world just like America. Nobody can take us, right? Two things. Number one, internal moral decay. We don't have a problem with that in this country. And number two, the decay of the home. My wife was a kindergarten teacher, a first grade teacher, before we decided to have a baby. And she saw a real difference in the children whose parents were there for them and those who, who, whose parents were gone all the time. And being in the military, I see that all the time. And so Satan deceives us into thinking that we need that second job, that extra income. 80% of the money is going to go to, to child care anyway, I found out. And he, he deceives us into thinking that we have to have a certain standard of living to be happy. Like Paul, I've been in situations where I've had plenty, and I've been in situations where I've had nothing but a tent and a sleeping bag in 130-degree heat in the desert, and I've been content because of my relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so money does not buy happiness. Philippians 4.19 tells us that God will provide for all of our needs. Matthew 6.33 tells me that if I seek first the kingdom, all the other stuff God's going to take care of, right? All that stuff will be added unto me. And it's been discouraging at times, church, when I tell people, I, I'm going to leave the flying behind. I'm going to leave all that behind because I want to serve God full time. Part time's not good enough for me. And they say, you can't do that. Ten more years, you'd have a retirement check. You're crazy. What are you thinking? I'm thinking that I believe in my God's promises. He promises me that if I'm faithful unto death and I obey the gospel of Christ and I'm washing his blood, that he'll save me. I believe in that. And I believe also that he'll provide for me in this life. I have no doubt about that. But that's one of Satan's deceptions. Finally, another one of Satan's deceptions is that this world and everything in it will bring you happiness. Luke chapter 4, what were the temptations of Christ? What did Satan promise him? He, he was trying to tempt him with the things of this world. The battle that Christ had during his temptations was a battle between the home of the body and the home of the soul. But Jesus had an eternal perspective. He looked beyond this life and what was to come. And so that's what I try to keep in mind. That's, that's what's so hard to keep in mind. I know that's hard to keep in mind at a young age. Because... Days are slow, but as you get old and those gray hairs start to come, the days speed up, don't they? Don't they, grandmas and grandpas? <laughs> it gets a little faster and faster. I'm getting some gray hairs up top. I'm too young to have gray hair. But I've been through two, 
seen two wars now, and I think that's why I have them. There was a little girl whose mother was working at the sink, and the little girl noticed some gray hairs in the back of her hair. And she said, Mommy, how do you get gray hairs? And the mother thought about it for a second, and she said, Every time you've made me cry, and every time you've made me sad, it, it gives me a gray hair. And the little girl thought about that for a second. And she said, well, Mommy, then why does Grandma have a full head of gray hair? <laughs> but I know you're as concerned about the young people in the church as I am. But I really believe, church, that we're not following that model in Titus 2 of the older teaching the younger. That's where we're losing it. That's where we're losing our young people. We're handing them over to youth ministers who are 20, 25 years old. There's nothing wrong with youth ministers. I think they do a lot of good for the church. But it's a dangerous thing because... What it enables me to do as a parent is to step back and say, you know what, somebody else is in charge now. But it's really the same with the preacher, isn't it? Or an evangelist. But we can't hire a youth minister to raise our children. I'm not going to let that happen. We can't hire a preacher to do our job and study the Word. And I can't hire an evangelist to save the lost. That's still my job. The second reason, young people, why you need to be concerned about the home of your soul and not the home of your body is because the world is decaying. The world is decaying. Jason, I used to be able to run a mile in less than five minutes. That's not bad for a short, fat, white guy, is it? But I'm finding out as I spend hours and hours sitting in the cockpit and eating McDonald's, I'm doing good just to get to the finish line. My body is not what I used to be, and I'm only about 30 years old. It's a, a sobering thing to watch a parent decay, isn't it? We've all seen that, or maybe a grandparent. I'm reminded of my maternal grandmother, who was one of the strongest Christian women that I had ever known and had watched growing up, preacher's wife. My grandfather's preached the gospel for 50 years at 81 years old. He's still doing it. And my grandmother had a stroke one day, and this woman who used to do so much for the Lord was now paralyzed on the left side of her body, could not move a muscle. And I watched as my grandfather took care of her and as her body decayed. And it reminded me that this world is decaying. And that the youth and the energy that you have one day will pass. There is nothing in this world that I can grip tight enough to hold on to. That's one thing that I've learned. Because the more God blesses, and this is the ironic part, the more God blesses, the more we're tempted to think that we've done it ourselves. I remember after 9-11, I thought this was so interesting. As a person in the military, it was very comforting to see all the signs and all the prayers being lifted up. God bless America. God bless America. Everywhere on the bumper stickers, in the windows, all over the place. And so I go off to Afghanistan and I come back and I don't see that anymore. Where did it go? Does it take another tragedy for America to lift its, or to kneel and get on our knees in prayer. But the more God blesses us, the more we tend to think that we do it ourselves and we forget where it comes from. Acts chapter 2 tells us the only thing in this world that is not decaying and that will not decay is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because Peter says, this grave, or this scripture was not talking about David. David's grave is right here, and his body is decaying, but Jesus is not. 
That is the only thing in this world that I have to hold on to. My country might be taken away. My family might be taken away, but my faith, they cannot rob. That is the one thing that I cling to. The third reason why I want you to be concerned about the home of your soul instead of the home of the body is that the world is defiled. The world is defiled. I was on a trip three weeks ago flying out in the Pacific Ocean, and we landed somewhere, and the guys that I'm with started talking about the things that guys like to talk about, right? The things that you hear at school. The things that as a Christian you can't have any part of. And I used to just sit there and listen to it, try not to, to listen to it, to ignore it. But I don't do that anymore. Because as a Christian, I refuse to let them defile me, because I have to keep myself pure. And so I pull them aside, and I, I gently and I respectfully say, would you mind talking about something else? This time, he didn't. He continued. So I said, well, if he's going to continue with his stuff and talk about this with the crew, I'm going to start it with my stuff. So I started in, restore my spirit, Lord. <laughs> and these guys start looking at me like I'm crazy, because I am. I'm crazy about my Jesus. I'm crazy about my faith. But it made him stop, and it made him think a little bit. If the world's going to play their stuff, I'm going to play mine too. One thing that I really believe has defiled our youth is television. My wife and I disconnected our cable three years ago, and I don't miss the news because I know when I do watch it, it's the same old stuff, Iraq and the presidential election. If something important happens, like Mount St. Helens blowing up on my house while I'm gone, somebody will tell me. But my wife and I, we, we don't watch rated R movies. We, a lot of times, don't watch PG-13 anymore because it's gotten bad. PG-13, when I was a kid, was okay. Now it's not. And a lot of the shows that, that we were watching on television, they were okay shows, but then the commercials would come on. And I said, you know what, this is having an effect on the family, and as the head of the household, I think we're going to cut this cable off. And so we did. And I want to tell you, church, my wife and I have a stronger marriage because of it. Because we come home on Thursday or Friday night, and we don't flip on the television. We're thinking about our relationship and our children. And we're thinking about the lost, who we can reach. And we've grown so close as a family. And I think that's a big reason why many young people are leaving the church. We're not spending the time with our young people that we need to. Because it's not going to come from this service. I grew up in the church as many of you probably did. And I, I'm going to tell you, these young people will not develop a faith of their own by coming to this building. They have to see mom and dad doing it. They have to see that example. They've got to see mom and dad on Friday nights having people into the home and studying with non-Christians. Because how are they going to learn how to do a study if they don't see one done? It's not going to happen. They have to see mom and dad fighting the good fight and running the race. Wasn't that the problem in the Old Testament? God said, I don't want a part of these sacrifices because they are defiled. They are blemished. You don't bring me second best, says God. You bring me your first fruits. And God refuses to have a relationship with me and you two hours a week, two days a week. God wants a seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day, committed, honest, hard-working relationship. He will accept nothing less than the best that you have to give. And he will not accept a defiled life. Galatians 
if you'll turn there with me, is a passage, as we wrap this up, that has been close to my heart. Because it tells me about defilement and how to handle it. Galatians chapter 5, 13. Paul writes, you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for flesh, but through love serve one another. And that's what we've got to be doing. We've got to be serving one another. You've got to be serving the Mount Juliet community or they will never see Jesus. But wherever we go in this world, Satan is trying to defile us. The world is trying to defile you, young people. And let me tell you, as one who has been there, when you leave home and you get to college, Satan will rock your world if you're not ready. He will rock your world. And you will be put in a war zone, on a battlefield. And you're either going to survive or you're going to fail, sink or swim. And whether or not these young people sink or swim depends on what you do with them while you have them. Proverbs 22.6 Train up a child in the way she go. When they're old, they will not depart from it. A lot of young people get a little bit confused about and distracted by dating at a young age. I see 13 and 14-year-old kids dating. That scares me. When I was 13 years old, I was thinking about going out and having a good time and sports. I wasn't thinking about girls at 13. That didn't come until 14, probably. (laughs) We start thinking about these things. But I'm convinced that young people need to be dating Christ. And until they're ready to have a committed relationship, a marriage, they don't really need to be thinking about marriage. Because when you're a Christian, you're dating Jesus. You're courting Jesus through fellowship and friendship and relationship. And so many young people get distracted in their relationship with Christ because they meet some girl or some boy that they fall head over heels with. That study I was telling you about last week, the 19-year-old kid that was divorced and had the one-year-old child, I told him, I, I said, I can tell you exactly the type of woman you're going to marry. And he said, how's that? I said, all right, let me ask you a question. Who was the first woman that ever came into your life? And he said, well, when I was 14, I dated, uh-uh. I said, think back farther than that. Who was the first woman that came into your life? He said, well, my mama. I said, right. I said, who was the first woman to love you? He said, my mama. I said, who was the the woman that you've been adjusting to for 19 years. He said, my mama. I said, guess what type of woman you're going to marry? He said, my mama. (laughs) I said, yeah, you're right. You're right. Isn't it right, brothers? (laughs) You wind up marrying someone like your mother because that's who you've grown up with and that's what you're accustomed to. The interesting thing is when you date, you are attracted to someone who is the exact opposite of you a lot of times. Why is that, do you think? It's because the things that I see in me as weaknesses, I see in her as strengths. And so I'm attracted to that because she compliments me. We compliment one another. Her weak areas, I have strengths in. She's good looking, I'm ugly. That's how it works. And so like I said before, I know there's some ugly little boy out there who's going to want to marry my daughter one day. I'm looking for a big stick. 
because we got to keep those ugly boys away from our daughters, daddies. <laughs> but relationships are something that are so important. When you go into marriage, you have to be convinced that it is for life. I would, have not, I would not have married Tracy under a prenuptial agreement or under, under the thinking that this might not last. And whatever struggles that we've gone through, and we've gone through a lot because I live 3,000 miles away from my family, I can't call up mom or dad and say, hey, I'm having problems. We have to work it out. And so we have our church. And so if you go off and you go away from home, you've got to get involved in the church. Wherever I've gone, the first thing I've done is found the church. And that is why I'm here today and not part of that 70, 65% that has fallen away. The church is a family. And we have to love like a family. Ephesians 5 says that we're married to Christ. We're supposed to be the pure bride of Christ. 2 Corinthians 6.14, this is the last point I'll make and then I'll close, says that a believer should not be bound to an unbeliever. Did you know that? Lightness and darkness should not mix. I will not do a wedding between a believer and a non-believer. If there is anything in my life besides becoming a Christian that I'm glad I did, it is that I, I looked for, sought out, and married a Christian woman. That has made a world of difference to me. Because we share the same values. And I know when I'm out of town that my wife will still train up my children in the way of the Lord. And she'll still take them to the assembly. And so, church, this world is deceitful. This world is decaying. And this world is defiled. And our young people are falling away at an alarming rate. But I refuse to let it happen on my watch. I'm going to do everything I can to keep our young people in the church, to train them. And that means getting involved in their lives. And I'm not just talking about teenagers. I'm talking about visitors, anybody who walks in here, because we're all that we have. And we've got to learn to love one another. And there's no way we can bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2, unless we're spending more time together as a family. Because we're going to have problems. But we've got to learn to love one another and get over those problems. When I have a problem with my brother or sister, if I've been in their home and I've eaten a meal with them and I've seen their dirty laundry, it's a lot easier for me to work it out with them. Wouldn't it be so good if we all just went home together tonight? Wouldn't that be good? I mean, there'd be all sorts of dirty laundry we'd have to kick under the bed and all sorts of closets we'd have to close. But that's all right because we're a family. And so the world is trying to pull us away. What do we do? We walk by faith and not by sight. What is faith? Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is conviction in the things that we cannot see. I don't care what your science teacher says. Evolution is a bunch of baloney. There is a God. And I have faith that God will be true to his promises. And that's what I want you to have. I'd like to close by making this point, there are three major decisions that every young person has to make in life. Their mission, their mate, and their master. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to use your Bible as you make that decision, all right? As you're thinking about what do I want to do in life, use your Bible to choose your mission. 
That's one of the reasons I'm getting out of the Air Force. I'm gone 250 days a year. How good of a husband and father do you think I can be when I'm not there? Choose a job where you can be home and you can be at the assembly. Choose a job where you can be available to people who are hurting and reach out to the lost. And I don't care about that extra money because there are things that money cannot buy. And then choose your mate. I want to encourage you again to find a Christian spouse and then choose your master. Choose your master. It's either going to be Satan or it's going to be the Lord. It's going to either be the home of the body or the home of the soul. Let's close with the prayer, church. Father, I thank you for this time that we've had to study your word. Every time I prepare a lesson, Lord, I, I'm pricked to the heart and reminded of the things that I need to work on. And I hope that I've been able to encourage the church tonight as much as they've encouraged me by their presence here and by their love. I pray, Father, that we're able to pass on the faith of our fathers to our children and to our children's children, that they can see through our example, through our life, and through our teaching, what it means to serve you, and that we're looking forward to the home of the soul, Father. I pray for these young people here, that every one of them would remain true to the faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's anyone here tonight who wants to make Jesus the master of their life, if there's anyone here who needs the prayers of the church, the elders will be happy to take your response as we stand together and sing.